I'm Bridget Stomberg. And I'm Lisa D. Simone. And this is Taxes for the Masses. Today's episode is on the movement of high-level employees from public sector to private sector jobs and vice versa. Termed the revolving door, this practice is often perceived as distorting relationships between the government and the private sector, particularly when individuals move from roles as regulators into jobs with private sector businesses that are affected by the regulatory body they just left. In today's episode, we discuss the practice of individuals, often lawyers, shuffling from roles with the U.S. Treasury and the IRS into jobs for high-powered accounting firms and businesses. Hello, Lisa. Hello, B. Today, we are talking about revolving doors and not the kind that you and I were once trapped in at a tax conference. <laughs> Thankfully not. And um, I'm hopeful we can sound a little more intelligent discussing revolving doors than that little anecdote you shared of us getting stuck in revolving doors makes us out to be. Well, as usual, I was the one who got us stuck because I don't know how to operate something as simple as a door. <laughs> you were just an innocent bystander. Yes, I um, shudder to think what might have happened if the door had somehow been operated by like some sophisticated piece of technology, like a computer or a phone or something else that you don't know how to operate. As do I. It's a frightening thought. But we digress. Today, we aren't talking about literal doors, but rather figurative ones that allow individuals to move seamlessly between the public and private sectors. That's right. So our goals for today are, one, to discuss the mechanics of revolving doors and concerns they raise generally, and two, to provide an overview of potential problems specific to the tax context. So Lisa, start us off with the different types of revolving doors that exist. Sure. First, there are those that you get us stuck in, (laughs) and then there are those that you don't enter and we don't get stuck in. I like the second type much better. Don't ever use the revolving door, people. Screw the energy loss. Just go through the regular door. Continue. (laughs) Okay. So broadly speaking, revolving doors can go between government and industry, meaning the very firms that the government was regulating, or between government and lobbyists, meaning people whose job it is to influence what laws or regulations get written. Today, we're going to focus on transitions between government and industry. Going one way, an individual might leave industry to move into an important role in a regulatory agency. And if we take a more optimistic view, this might be a good thing. The individual might make this choice because they can bring their private sector expertise to bear in policy development and enforcement. And if we take a more pessimistic view, we might think the individual is making this move to secure a pro-business slant in developing policies or enforcement efforts. Okay, fair enough. Going the other direction, a public official could seek a private sector job to obtain a more lucrative salary because of their extensive government experience. Yes, I have heard tell that government jobs might not be the most lucrative. I've heard that as well. And I can fully understand wanting to get paid for your specific and unique expertise. That seems reasonable. Very. But again, a pessimistic view would suggest that private sector businesses seek out these public officials and entice them with high salaries not necessarily to get access to their expertise, but rather to gain unfair benefits and special access or insider information that will give them a competitive advantage. 
Exactly. So for these reasons that you just mentioned, there's some public concern about the revolving door in the U.S. and in other countries. So I have a fun fact for you. Bring it. But first, I need to apologize to anyone who speaks French or Japanese or who has any respect for foreign languages whatsoever. Or who enters a revolving door with you in it. That too. I'm just apologizing to everybody today, I guess. But I'm going to try to pronounce for you the terms for revolving door in French and Japanese. Ooh, I like it. So in French, the term is pantouflage, which means cocooning. I don't know what cocooning means. It, it means revolving door. I guess you're like, you're cocooned, <laughs> you're cozy. In there. We were very cozy in that revolving door, that little space that we were trapped in together. Don't remind me. And in Japanese, it's amakudari, which means parachuting from heaven. Oh, that's lovely. It's lovely. I understand it less than cocooning, but we're just going to go with it. All right. Whatever you call them, these practices can call into question the integrity of public officials and regulators and can generate conflicts of interest that lead to biased policymaking and enforcement efforts. Both things can undermine the public trust, which, as you know, is no bueno. Now, I first became aware of the serious potential pitfalls of the revolving door watching the excellent docudrama Dope Sick on Hulu. Because we all know you you get most of your education from pop culture and not at all from the Florida public school system. Not at all. I do. The vast majority of what I know I learned from television and radio. And surprisingly, this is not something I learned from a teen drama. So this is a rarity. I think I should. But okay. now that I say that, I think you could make the argument that when Sandy Cohen was hired out of the public defender's office by Partridge, Savage and Khan on the OC, that could be another example, a teen drama example of a revolving door. And you've derailed. I have. So back to Dope Sick and the book Empire of Pain trying to make me sound a little smarter. I liked the book. I just read it. It was really good. Okay, it's sitting on my coffee table. Uh, I'm a little scared. I'm a little intimidated because it's a large book. It's a large book, but it goes pretty quickly. Okay. So according to that book, um, a former director of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, who oversaw the agency's evaluation of Oxy and led the drug's approval, was subsequently hired by Purdue Pharma, the maker of Oxy, shortly thereafter for a compensation package of $400,000. And according to an article in Science, 11 of 16 medical examiners who worked to approve various drugs subsequently left the FDA for new jobs and are now either directly employed by or consult for the drug companies that they previously regulated. Yeah, it's not a great look um, in Purdue Pharma's case, especially because they recently agreed to a $6 billion uh, settlement for damages for its role in the opioid crisis. And by the way, that $6 billion was a lot less than what many of the state prosecutors wanted to get. Yep. In 2008, the FDA denied a petition by then Connecticut Attorney General Richard Blumenthal requesting additional warnings be added to the drug Oxy's label about its potential risks. Yeah, so it's definitely not a good look. And just so our listeners don't think we've totally gone off the rails today, there's also some speculation that the revolving door between bank executives and financial regulators contributed at least in part to the financial crisis. Yes, and to bring the discussion a little closer to the business world— The OECD, Tax Transparency International, and even the U.S. Government Accountability Office cite the revolving door in the financial sector as a contributing factor in the 2008 financial crisis, as you suggested. One study documents a peak in both government-to-industry and industry-to-government movement between 2007 and 2008, which demonstrates that the beginning of the great financial crisis coincided with a peak in what could be considered revolving door arrangements. 
Yeah, that study highlights a particular conflict that can arise from the revolving door, something we call regulatory capture. Regulatory capture is when regulatory agencies become dominated by the interests they regulate rather than by the public interest. And government officials might become a little too sympathetic to the needs of businesses in the industries they are supposed to be regulating if they used to work in those industries. Regulatory capture can become a big mistake. Big. Huge. Well done. A 2009 OECD report analyzed 116 financial institutions, including banks and insurance companies in the Fortune 500, and found evidence of revolving door connections at 81 companies, so well over half. The most agreements were with securities companies like Lehman Brothers. Hey, remember them? Oh, yeah. Yep, not around anymore. And Goldman Sachs. That same report also documented that former executives from Goldman, bank consulting firms, and even KPMG served as senior executives at the FDIC. And a 2020 report from the U.S. Government Accountability Office concluded that the FDIC could do more to mitigate the risks of regulatory capture in the financial sector. Okay, so we've talked about OxyContin and the financial crisis, but um, this is a, uh, a tax podcast, so... Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right, yes, fair enough, but I guess we just got distracted by drugs and money. And I'm sure we're the first people that has ever happened to. Absolutely. We use the pharmaceutical and financial industries as examples because they illustrate obvious opportunities for revolving doors and make it plain to see the problems with those arrangements. Yes, but if I was going to sit back and think about how to corrupt income taxes, which seems like a really enjoyable way to pass the time. Totally. If I were going to do that, I would probably think more about lobbying than movement between the public and private sector jobs. Okay, that's a fair point. It's difficult to know exactly how much money corporations spend to lobby for pro-business tax breaks, but um, I'm just going to throw out a wild guess and say probably not a small amount. I think you would be right. According to an article from Politico, a group of 55 public companies spent $450 million on lobbying and campaign contributions over a three-year window, and more than half of them spent some of that money lobbying for tax issues, including business-friendly components of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. In fact, one coalition of 37 companies called the Alliance for Competitive Taxation spent $2 million in 2017 alone lobbying exclusively for tax issues. And those individuals who lobbied on behalf of that alliance have ties to PricewaterhouseCoopers, which is a big four accounting firm. And several of those lobbyists used to hold positions with the U.S. government. Exactly. And um, I'm having trouble staying on task today because this is a great example of government to lobbyist revolving doors. But that's what we said we weren't going to talk about today. Yeah, we're doing a really good job of that. We are. But to your point, it's difficult to imagine a former congressperson leaving public service to become a tax consultant. Are you insinuating that Congress people don't know anything about tax? I'm just going to let that one slide. No comment. What I'm saying is that the revolving door in the tax universe is perhaps a little less obvious um, than some of the other situations we were just talking about because it most typically involves lawyers at a public accounting firm taking temporary jobs at Treasury writing regulations, which are interpretations of the tax law. Um, And they write them in a way that favors their former employer's clients and then return to those jobs and industry, often with promotions and higher pay. 
Right. Instead of former industry executives taking government jobs to promote policies that weaken regulatory oversight or turning a blind eye to regulatory infractions during audits, these individuals can interpret the rules that Congress sets in a way that is more business friendly. What's more, because they wrote the regulations, these individuals know exactly how to exploit potential loopholes or wrinkles in those regulations in a way that benefits their firm's clients. Yep, they're pretty much tailor-made loopholes. Absolutely. Reporting for the New York Times, Jesse Drucker and Danny Hackham offer several examples. Following lobbying efforts by PwC, a former PwC partner in the Trump administration helped craft regulations that allowed large multinationals to avoid billions in tax. A senior employee at RSM took a job at Treasury, expanded a tax break consistent with the wishes of RSM, and then conveniently returned to his job at the accounting firm. That article counts at least 35 cases of what it calls round trips from public accounting firms to Treasury, the IRS, or the Joint Committee on Taxation, and then back to the accounting firm. In almost half of those cases, the individuals were promoted to partner after returning, and some had their pay doubled upon their return. Okay, according to Glassdoor, the average PwC partner salary is over 500000 and the average bonus is over 100000 which begs the question, remind me again why we left public accounting? Oh, I can do this. Okay. Clients? Oh, hate those. Busy season? Ooh, yeah. Time sheets? Uh, okay. And maybe there are more important things to a job than money, like feeling like you're bettering society through education. Sure. Fine. Whatever. Thank you for that reminder. Seriously. You're welcome. I love my job. For comparison, the federal government's general schedule pay scale tops out at under 150000 So 600000 and more or less than 150000 Yeah, these lawyers and other practitioners take a pay cut for a year or two in hopes of a big payday when they return to their firms. And financial relationships such as these are not prohibited. And it doesn't even have to be the case that the individual writes the regulations in an intentionally biased way in order to benefit from these stints at Treasury. So when I worked at PwC, there was an attorney who took a job at Treasury for a brief period of time and helped write the regulations around equipment and capital expenditures. Now, from my perspective, this person was extremely ethical, and I don't believe they did anything shady in drafting those regulations. But when PwC hired this person back, they were no doubt able to capitalize on his expertise, no pun intended, but when proposing services to clients. So they could go to clients and say, hey, if you want to know what to do with your capital expenditures, who better to tell you than the person who wrote the regs on capital expenditures? Totally. And I have similar stories about economists who wrote some of the transfer pricing regulations and then returned to advise clients on those regulations that they wrote. Yeah. Not alleging they did anything wrong, just that like, who better to hire as your advisor than the person who wrote the regulations? These are examples of arrangements offering accounting firms an opportunity to profit from the expertise of their employees who had key influence in drafting regs. So earlier in 2022, Senator Elizabeth Warren and Representative Pramila Jayapal called on the Treasury Department to investigate these schemes, stating, quote, accounting giants are abusing the public trust and taking advantage of the revolving door between public sector and private profit, end quote. And the problem is likely not confined to lawyers and economists moving in and out of treasury. A working paper by Jiang Wang and our PhD dad, John Robinson, uses LinkedIn data to track the movement of former IRS employees. 
They estimate over 3,700 former IRS employees join corporations and almost 1,300 join accounting or law firms. Many of them were former tax examiners or revenue agents. And that might not seem like a big deal because IRS agents don't write the tax law. They don't write regulations, but they can still add value to their new employers by offering informal tricks of the trade, advice on how to avoid an audit altogether or how to achieve a favorable outcome once audited. And if you'll recall from prior episodes, we've discussed the fact that IRS agents are, in fact, human beings. What? They are social creatures. What? I'm going to say that metaphorically because it may not literally be true. Um, They may not be the most social of creatures, but, you know, you understand what I'm saying here. Okay. It's not unreasonable to think that if two people used to work together as agents, then one of them moves to the private sector the other might look a little more favorably on their former coworker's firm during an audit than somebody else's firm that they didn't ever work with. I totally agree. And this goes back to my very prescient reference to Sandy Cohen. Oh, dear. It could be the case that a big money law firm wanted to hire a former public defender to exploit his connections and personal relationships with prosecutors for the benefit of their clients. And what happened to Sandy? Well, he eventually left, became... CEO of the Newport Group and temporarily was corrupted, but eventually came back to his morals and ethics. It all ended well. Okay. How about we go back to Jang, Robinson, Wang? Fine. They find public companies that hire former IRS employees with tax expertise don't lower their tax burdens, but they have less volatility in their tax burdens. And that could suggest that they have a lower level of tax risk, which makes some sense if they have insider information about how to circumvent or win an audit. Totally. They also find evidence of lower settlements upon audit and smaller penalties for tax noncompliance. And in the immortal words of our research dad, John Robinson, that is potentially no bueno. the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I'm going to kick it off today and say that in theory, in theory, I like the notion of allowing former private sector workers to enter the public sector and contribute their expertise to policy design and regulatory oversight. Agreed. We've criticized politicians before for crafting tax law without thoroughly consulting experts, so we'd be big old hypocrites if we then turned around and criticized government organizations for hiring those experts to help design policy and oversee private sector businesses. Exactly. We would be total hypocrites. And there's good reason to draw on former private sector members. It's like the saying goes, it takes a thief to catch a thief. So having individuals who know how policies get applied in practice and frankly circumvented in practice, in theory, could lead to better policy design that is a lot more difficult to circumvent. Absolutely agree. All right. So the bad. I'd say some of the bad is around the window dressing that both public and private entities engage in on this issue. Everyone seems to admit that the revolving door can be problematic, and some agencies and businesses have policies in place ostensibly to prevent conflicts of interest from arising, but it's not entirely clear how effective these safeguards are. It's not. In their letter, Senator Warren and Representative Jayapal noted that although the accounting firms and the Treasury Department have ethics policies in place, 
specifically designed to prevent conflicts of interest, the policies were, quote, simply ineffective and failed to provide adequate standards to protect the public interest from corrosive revolving door activity, end quote. At least I didn't get us stuck in a corrosive revolving door. Their letter also referenced Senator Warren's proposed Anti-Corruption and Public Integrity Act, which, among other things, seeks to limit companies' ability to buy influence by requiring former senior officials to disclose their income for four years after they leave government employment and prohibiting large banks and businesses from hiring or paying former senior government officials for four years after they leave their government posts. And that brings us to the ugly. Money, money, money. I have to imagine it is very tempting for a government employee to want to curry favor with a business that it's supposed to be regulating for the promise of a big payday, especially keeping those low government salaries in mind. Or for a big four accounting employee to stomach a pay cut for a few years if it means returning to a million dollar partner's salary and bonus. Totally. I mean, it is just it's just like the Wu-Tang said. Mm, The what now? You know, the Wu-Tang, Wu-Tang clan. I do know the Wu-Tang, but I'm less familiar with their stance on the revolving door. Please do enlighten us. Oh, yes. Not not their stance on the revolving door, their stance on money. Okay. Cash rules everything around me. Cream, get the money. Dollar, dollar bill, y'all. See, here I thought you would go to my favorite, the notorious B.I.G., Mo Money, Mo Problems. This is, this is less money, Mo Problems. <laughs> Fair enough. And not only does the Wu-Tang know what's up, Senator Warren knows what's up. I think they've been talking to each other. They have. (laughs) Absolutely. Her proposal calls for increased agency resources to level the playing field between corporate lobbyists and federal agencies. So although it stops short of calling for higher government salaries, it is at least speaking to the concept of money and the role it plays in the revolving door. Luigi Zingales, who's a professor at the University of Chicago and co-host of the podcast Capital Isn't, did not stop short, talking with MarketWatch about the shocking speed at which the doors revolve between the SEC and its registrants, Professor Zingales suggested paying SEC attorneys more in exchange for a longer cooling off period before taking a job in the private sector. And I'm paraphrasing now, but he also suggested changing up the mix of individuals involved in policy design and regulation. Finding a way for individuals other than lawyers to be involved in these processes could help slow the revolving door. For example, could academics be included in drafting tax regulations? What a novel idea. Yes, and because as you helped remind me, you couldn't pay me enough money to return to public accounting. No, ma'am. And I don't think tax regulations are helping our students at all. Well, that's all we have time for today. Be sure to join us for more tax nerdery on future episodes, Taxes for the Masses. 